Good morning. My name is Adam, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to personally welcome you. Uh, Happy New Year. This is the first weekend of the new year. I trust everyone had a good, safe weekend and uh, fun bringing in that new year. This morning's also, uh, we wrap up our kind of our holiday series. We've been titled it Expectation. We're going to bring that to a close this morning. And I thought to kind of get it, we're going to kind of, it's going to be a New Year's oriented kind of resolution driven uh, message. And as we think about the new year, one of the things that we often do this time of year, you and I, I, I sit with friends and I talk with them. I see it on Facebook is it's really the time of year we begin talking about new starts. We're talking about restarts. We're talking about resolutions, we're t- and, and as I think about them, and, and many of them are so admirable, and they're lofty, and I just sit back and say, wow. But the reality is, the likelihood of accomplishing them is low. Uh, the likelihood of really hitting them out of the park and getting to 2014 and saying, you know what, I did it, I got it done, is actually not real strong. Statistics say that most of us, most of us by the middle of February, won't even remember what our resolution was, let alone have accomplished it. So kind of to help us with that, I thought, you know what, let's have a little fun this morning. And maybe the problem is we set the bar too high. Maybe we've got to bring the bar down just a little and, and put a resolution together that we are assured to hit. So as I was thinking of some uh, that I would enjoy, I thought, well, maybe, maybe this year, everyone's talking about dieting and everyone's talking about getting in shape and eating right. I thought, maybe I'm going to up my carb intake. Everyone's talking about lowering it. Let's up the carb and let's give... Let's give the lesser-known pastry, the donut, a little more loving. I mean, what do you think? So by next year, 2014, let's up our donut intake. I mean, I think, so when we get to next year at this time, I can look at you and say, you know what? I accomplished my New Year's resolution. Or maybe another one. A lot of us are talking about time management. We're busy. I mean, where do we get more time? What do we do? So, so <laughs> I was kicking this one around. I thought, well, maybe for time management, maybe a good resolution would be let's hit snooze four times a morning, not just once, not just twice. Let's go for four or, or one to hit my brain this morning. This is one that I just kind of popped my head this morning. Um, I brushed my teeth and got all ready and Tanya sings this morning. So I've, I have to get up a little earlier and, and I wasn't, I'm rushing around getting the kids ready. And I pour that glass of OJ, brush my teeth already. You know, have you ever done this and you throw that thing down and it has that, wow, why did I just do that? Uh, so I got a new year's resolution, no more brushing my teeth and drinking orange juice. Or maybe, maybe I just won't brush my teeth in the morning. That would maybe, we, we, can, we can hit that one for sure by next year. But as we think about this, and you guys can go home this afternoon and sit around with your friends or your small group, and you can probably kick around a ton of other really funny, a lot more funnier than I was, uh, resolutions that you're assured to hit, uh, comical ones. But I think it highlights the reality that change is not easy. Uh, it's hard. Resolutions a lot of times don't succeed. So I'd ask the question, why do we keep making them? Why do we keep going at it? Why do we keep saying, let's change? As I thought about that question this week, one of the things that hit my mind is I thought the, the title of this morning's message, I think, captures it. Because it's not normal and it's quite unhealthy to not want to change. Part of what it means to be human is to grow. We are wired, every single one of us in this room, you can look at the person to your left or your right and you can tell them, hey, you are created in the image of God. Now, what it means to be created in the image of God is it's, it's a deep theological, cool truth. Uh, but real simplistically, at it, the it, 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 simplistic level, it means I am like him in a lot of capacities, and I'm wired to connect with him in a lot of capacities. Now, sin entered the world and messed that whole thing up. 
But the image is still here, though broken. And we have this internal angst to want to put it back together. Even if your person here says, I don't buy into this Christianity thing, you still have an angst inside of you to change and to grow and to get better. I mean, classic example. Any of you have children? Uh, children love to grow. They love to learn. They love, and, if, and if they don't, it's, it's probably because there's, maybe they have some kind of disorder or other kind of things that make that. But a, a natural, healthy child wants to grow. They want to master a new sport, a new talent, a new hobby. As you guys get older, as we get older, we then want to make more money, get better at our relationships, be a better husband, be a better wife. There's this, there's this inside piece of us that says, let's change. Let's get better. It's normal. But, but here's the, but change is hard work, isn't it? Change is hard work. My personal thought, and it's going to get us moving to where we're going this morning. My personal thought is we make change harder than it has to be. I think most of us, when it comes to change, whether it's losing a few pounds, whether it's change in a church environment, change in a business, change in your family, change in your marriage, uh, whether wherever it may be, we make it harder than it has to be because what I find that I do is I make it more about duty and not so much about pleasure. And if I made it more about pleasure and enjoyment, I think change would be a little easier. And you say, well, Adam, that's still hard work though, isn't it? Let me go back to the silly resolution. Why is it, if I would resolve to eat more donuts, why is that a for sure win for me? Why is that a guaranteed thing that next year at this time, I can say to you, I ate more donuts. Why is it easy to do? You know why? I love donuts. I mean, next to ice cream, a donut ranks right up there. A donut, is, it's, it's good. It's enjoyable. When it touches my mouth or, or I, I go into a, a morning meeting and there they are sitting on the plate and I begin to look at them and I have that salivation it begins to happen. I think, man, all I can think about is the donut. So I enjoy them. There's a pleasure component. Now, if you're here this morning and you, some of you, I know you're, you're odd. I get it. But it is, you are here. Say, I hate donuts. I can't stand them. Now, if that's you. If you made a resolution to eat more donuts, would you be able to eat more donuts? It's going to be hard, right? Because the pleasure component has been removed. You don't enjoy donuts. So I think what happens when we come to change, most of us, when it comes to losing weight, when it comes to getting better at something or getting better at my time or my relationships or something at work or a skill, most of us take the pleasure piece and remove it and we simply focus on duty, hard work, gut it out, lots of effort, lots of sweat, blood and toil, and we miss the pleasure component. I think it makes change pretty hard. The expectation that we're going to talk about this morning, kind of ready for the new year. This is going to end our series. Change isn't fun. Most of us live with this understanding. Change isn't fun, and it requires a gutted-out, duty-driven effort. Now, you say, that's a pretty accurate expectation, though, Adam. Well, it is. There's a lot of truth in there. Change is hard. Change does take effort. And at times, the fun word, you, yeah, you're right. You may not be able to put that after change. Just losing weight sometimes isn't a lot of fun or, or getting better at a personal devotion or getting better at what, some personality quirk that I have that really hurts people. Get, so, yeah, but the reality, though, is it's not the complete truth. It's not the full truth. There's, if you bring pleasure into it, it really changes the ball game quite a bit. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians Kind of build on this truth and hopefully um, head home understanding kind of what we're talking about here. Second Corinthians chapter uh, 6. 
Again, if you're not familiar with your Bible, I want to say welcome. Well, I know we've got a lot of kids in the service this morning. We, we have, there's lots of illness running around. Our children's uh, church team took a hit on that one. And we had, so again, a lot of kids here. So even if you're a child and the Bible's brand new to you or just learning to read, welcome. Glad you're here. You're going to find 2 Corinthians about three quarters of the way through. You're going to see it's in the New Testament is what we call it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, goodness, Acts, sorry, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And then you'll hit 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, as we go into this, let me make this final statement. Let me think about this. Picture in your mind right now the last sin that you committed. Some of you don't want to do that. Some of you are like, ah, God forgave me. My wife forgave me. My husband forgave me. My neighbor forgave me. My kids forgave me. Just try and get it in your mind. And I want to ask you to think about this. Did anyone command you to do that? Some of you may be here and say, yeah, actually, I was told to do the thing that I did that was wrong. But it's probably a rare person here. No one commanded me to do the sin that I committed last, right? No one commanded it. Why did I do it? Why did I do it? Why did you do it? Because it looked like a lot of fun, right? It looked like a lot of enjoyment. It looked like it was going to make life easier. It looks like it was going to take care of you. It looks like it was, no one commands us to sin. And that's what we're going to go after this morning, that we really, when it comes to obedience, for some reason, we make it all about duty and commandments, and we miss the fact that that's not why we sin. And I think Jesus and God, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, understand something. And what they ask us to do is trust in the promises of our Heavenly Father. Put faith. God gives us a ton of statements in the Bible. We're going to talk about this. God says, this is going to happen. Trust me, you are going to be blessed if you do this. This is going to bring you enjoyment. This is going to bring you pleasure. This is going to be really, really good. Or this, if you do this, you're going to have a lot of pain and you're going to have a lot of, and it goes on down the list. But the, the heart of it is then is we need to learn to trust in the promises. And it's not just to gut it out, but it's, this is going to be good. This is going to be fun. This is going to bring enjoyment. Second Corinthians, with that said, chapter six, verse 14 picks right up at a very well-known verse. If you have been in the church any number of time, you have probably heard this verse. Those of you who are young people and not yet married, you have probably heard this verse or had a parent talk to you about this verse. Those of you who are dating have had this verse probably kicked around and thrown at you. So here it is, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with who? Paul's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who believe in Jesus. He's saying, listen, don't be yoked together with, with people who don't know Jesus, who are not Christians. Now, we'll talk about what this word yoke means in a minute and why it is, but he's, he's going to go on then and kind of throw out all these contrasting terms. So he's going to use terms that should be true of Christians, and then he's going to throw out the total opposite and say, listen, don't be partnered with this. So here it goes, verse 14. For what does righteousness, a Christian... And wickedness, a person who doesn't believe in Jesus, have in common? It's a rhetorical question. Is there common things between righteousness and wickedness? No. He goes on. Or what fellowship can light, again, extremes, have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is an ancient term for Satan or the devil? I mean, what possible harmony? Can there be friendship between the two? No. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? 
For we, and he goes into this beautiful picture, for we are the temple of the living God as God has said. Now, here's a cool promise. I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So if you're a person here who says, I'm a believer in Jesus, you have the cool truth, cool thing the Bible teaches. You have God living inside of you. Awesome. You're the temple of God. Um, the church I used to pastor at, the senior pastor there, I loved it. He, he'd get really, he had a, he had a couple quirks about him that he really was very passionate about. One is he hated when people called this room, the sanctuary, because he said, it's not a sanctuary. You're the sanctuary. You're the temple. This is just a room that we meet in. So he'd always try and so again, the cool teaching is you have God living inside of you. If you are a Christian, awesome truth. So therefore, if God's living inside of you, why are you hooking up with people who are not, do not have God living inside of them? Now, he continues, verse 17, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, what does this whole yoke thing, I just want to capture this thought. Here it is. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 22. The Apostle Paul, as his writing, would have been looking back at the Old Testament. I threw this picture up. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, written to an agrarian agricultural society, says, do not yoke a donkey and an ox together. Now, you look at these two animals. I'm not big into, you know, I know the farm show is going on right now, and I love to take my kids, and it's lots of fun. But I really can't tell you a lot about animals other than just simply looking at that. That doesn't work, Right? I mean, you you just know that's not a good idea. I mean, one of them is obviously much larger. The other is much smaller. I mean, if that donkey takes off, I think he might choke. What do you think? I mean, that thing's going to hang him and he may, he may have a problem. I also, from what I, again, my ignorance of animals tells me, but I, I think this is pretty true that that ox is a lot more powerful than that donkey. That donkey's an awful stubborn creature. I know some of us have been uh, associated with them at times. And that's, I mean, it's just, and then the ox is there. And the ox is given as a work, as an animal to plow the field. But Deuteronomy says, this isn't going to work. Don't do this. And so Paul is kind of borrowing this imagery of looking back at Deuteronomy saying, listen, Christians are just different. You're different. If you believe in Jesus, you are different. I am different from the world. So hooking up with the world in a yoke to get things done is not the way to do it. I mean, it's, it's, you're going to have problems, lots of problems. Now, this isn't a whole message on separation, but I do want to make a few comments on it. And to kind of do that, I um, want to kind of set the context. A lot of people use this verse and do some things with it that I'm like, eh, get a little nervous. <laughs> The context is what Paul is really dealing with. He is asking, if you look back just a few verses, he's giving this incredible, he's saying, listen, I want you to open your heart up to me. I want you to, to work with me, to partner with me. I want you to, 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 and he goes on all these things of how his heart is for him. And then he ends with verse 13 as, as I speak to you, my children, it's this endearing term, open wide your hearts also to me. He's saying, I want to accomplish the ministry. I want to get things done. I want to be effective. I want to be successful in Christian ministry. Let's partner. Let's yoke. Let's hook up together and do this thing called the work of God. So the work of God getting accomplished is really what he has in mind. So a couple things as we kick this around. The first one I'd say, how, how do we really make this part of the passage practical? First one, marriage, I think, is a, most people start there. I think it's an okay place to start. 
Marriage is a picture of God's work. Marriage, the husband and wife relationship, is a picture of the covenant relationship God has with us. It's a beautiful thing. And so I think it's a good place to start. Say, okay, well, that's God wants to work, and so marriage is a picture of that, so don't be unequally yoked. So I think a great practical point I'd say to the young people here, most of them sit over here, mothers may be scattered around. If you're not married yet and you're dating age and you're beginning to date and process, I would passionately, just everything in my pastoral heart say to you, do not fool around with people who do not love Jesus. I cannot say it enough. I can't tell you how many painful counseling sessions I've had with couples that have now been married a year, two, or three, who are saying, this guy is a loser. And I say, why'd you marry him? He wasn't a believer when you married him. What did you expect? Did you think this thing was going to work? I mean, if you sit here and you say to me, I love Jesus, then Paul's words is, why would you hang out and make the, the most special person in your life, your spouse, be someone who doesn't love Jesus? It doesn't work. So I think it's the first great practical application. This is also why as a pastor, um, I will not ever perform a wedding, stand in front of people. And if I know that the groom or the bride, either or is a believer and the other is not, I will just say, sorry. Now I have had some come to me that they both say I'm not a believer. I will, I will, at least at this point, I'll still do that wedding because I see, you know, they've, it's still the one area where the, the world comes to us to look for help. And oftentimes it's been a cool thing. I've seen people come to know Jesus through that awesome time. The real, the real trick is when I have one through that process accepts Jesus and the other is like, eh, I'm not still not so sure, then I get stuck. So it is a tricky thing. But again, I just leave it at this. Marriage, marriage is really designed to be Christian together. One thing, final thing I'll say, and I'll move on to another practical thing. You're sitting here and saying, well, I'm already married. He's not a believer. She's not a believer. What do I do now? Does that mean I divorce him? Scripture is pretty clear in that. If they're willing to stay with you, stay with them. You've been married. It's a covenant promise. Unfortunately, you're going to have a life of, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be fun. You're not going to have that sweet fellowship that I see other couples have. But the Bible says stay with them as long as, again, they want to stay with you. Now, next thing I'd say, friendship is a big one. When you're talking about in the context of doing ministry, accomplishing the work of God, I can't do the work of God. You can't do the work of God without one another, without friends, without us, fellowship. So if that's, if we're going to link arms together, it's important that our best friends be Christian people. This doesn't mean you can't have friends that aren't, don't know Jesus. But the person that is your closest confidant, the one you cry with, the one you share your deepest secrets with, the one you go to, it's silly. It's, Paul says it just doesn't even make sense. If you are passionate and you're in love with Jesus, you're a Christian, why you would hook up with your best friend not coming from that same view and vantage point. It says it just doesn't work and it's not going to move God's message forward. Another one would be business. Most of you in this room do not have the cool privilege. I love it. I love what I do. I love that I get paid for what I do. It's, 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 it's cool. I love it. I love my job. Uh, but most of you are not missionaries. You are not pastors. Um, and you go and get money for, for another type of work that you'll do either tonight, tomorrow, or this week. It's still the work of God. It's just as important as what I do. God has gifted you in a way to accomplish his mission, his vision for your life and the world. So as you link arms, one of the things I'd say with business, if you're a business, you're going to own a business. 
I, I have seen disaster in this one. If you're going to own a business, I would say this passage applies to you in that you don't own it with someone who doesn't, isn't a Christian. If you're a Christian, don't go into business with somebody who's not a Christian. Some of you say, well, I'm never going to own a business. I'm not going to be a CEO. I'm not, okay. You, you work at a place. When I worked at Super Value or Crystal, one of the things I would have, I'd say, okay, I'm linking arms. I'm accomplishing God's will. The minute they ask me to do something that goes contrary to what, what Jesus would want me to do, I leave. I'm done. I step out. So again, I think that's in the final one I would say, and this is a big one to me, is we're in a message, and this will shift us back into the promises. We're in a message talking about change, talking about resolutions. The final thing I would say, Satan, when he comes at the church, Satan is really, is he ugly or is he beautiful? If you think about this, most of us have this picture of a horror movie when we think of Satan. And we think of the, the, the commercials that come on during the football games that my kids know we got to quick change the channel because, I mean, the ch- Chainsaw Massacre stuff that's coming out right now. I mean, we think of, when we think of Satan, we think of blood and guts and gore and fear and terror and horror and horns and pitchforks. Satan doesn't operate that way. Satan is, he, he, he's certainly involved in that and involved with fear. But Satan, the Bible teaches us, is beautiful. He's intelligent. He's an angel of light, it says. And he understands fully that when he reads this book, he can read it same as we read it. He reads it and he, he, the Bible actually says in James that the devils and Satan believe God, I think sometimes even more than we do. They have great faith in God. And because of it, they shudder. They're afraid. They're terrified. They know that they lose. So one of their tactics and Satan will not take the church on head on. He knows he loses he knows it's, and the other thing he knows, and you see this happen in parts of the world um, where the church actually gets stronger when there is direct frontal attack against it. Look at the third world right now in parts of the closed nations like China. Take China. No, it's not third world, but it's, it's illegal to be a Christian there. What's happening to the church in China right now? It is exploding. I mean, it is exciting. When I talk to Chinese pastors, it, it just knocks my... What's happening in China right now is incredible. But it's a country where it's illegal to do what we're doing right now in parts of it. So again, Satan doesn't take things head on. What Satan does is Satan works himself in and partners with us and makes it... He looks a lot like us. So one area that I would really, as we think about change and we think about resolutions, one area that I would apply verse 14 to us is counseling and self-help material. I am just, my heart, I'm going to speak as a pastor a minute, my care for people. My heart breaks with what I see Christian people latch into and suck up in trying to change and make their lives better. I've seen counseling under the name of the Christian counseling title that is anything but Christian. My passion as a pastor for you. If you're a person says, I want to get into counseling. I love counseling. I've been in counseling myself. I continue to go to counseling. I'd encourage it. I applaud it. But when you go, here's my, this, my passion. Look for a theologian before you look for a psychologist. I cannot say this enough. I talk to so many Christian counselors and I've been to some who are great psychologists. They know psychology inside and out and they will at times help but they're terrible theologians and ultimately they will destroy your life and mine. When you really go to look for a counselor, you look for someone who knows this book inside and out cover to cover and knows how to make it practical in the human life and heart. They know who God is and they know that when you're suffering, they don't just tack on all this, but they take you to see him. 
they understand who Jesus is. They understand the gospel and how the identity of the gospel works into a life. They understand humanity and, and they understand brokenness. It's hugely important. So that's another one I would just say, as you think of change and the books you read on change, look for theologians before you look for counselors. Personal testimony, the first counselor I really went to was a terrible counselor. I, I say that all the I just, he was terrible. His skill in counseling was not good. But you know what he was? He had his PhD in theology from Westminster Seminary. He knew scripture inside and out. And he helped me in the short term. I was like, this guy, what is going on? But as I look back, he drove more change in my life than any other human being I've ever interacted with. Because he knew the Bible, he knew the scriptures, and he knew what it was to bring Jesus very practical, make the gospel very real in my heart and my life. And it's far more valuable than what some of the psychologists have given me that I've sat with. So again, that's one where I'd say be careful. Now, I could go on a whole list, and you can too. The message isn't about separation, so you can continue that discussion in your small groups, in your families at home. Uh, But look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 7. Verse 1 of chapter 7 says it this way. Since we have these promises, dear friends, so it's this endearing term, we have these promises. Then he says something, because you have these, since because you have these, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I mean, God wants us to be holy people. He wants us to be set apart. He says, perfect this. Now, how do you do it? How do you go about doing it? What does he say? Since you have these promises. So the promises of God drive personal holiness. Now, what are the promises? Look back in the passage. What's one of the first ones you see immediately in the context? Look at verse 17. I will receive you. See that? It's a promise. Touch no unclean thing. Okay, that's the command. And what's the promise he gives you? I will receive you. We're going to be close We're going to be intimate. We're going to be in a relationship. And what's the next one he says? I will be a what? Now, that's not fathers. Some of us understand father. I mean, I I like to think I'm a good father, a decent father. I try really hard, but I'm imperfect. I mean, this is, I will be a perfect heavenly father to you. Now, look at the next promise. What's the next thing he says? You're going to be my son's. And daughters. Now, because you have these promises, it should motivate us to live in a certain way. And I want you to see this. This isn't duty, gutted out, work hard, sweat and effort. I want you to think about this. When you look at these promises, all of them are relational. And what makes a good relationship? Think about those of you who are married, your husband or your wife. What makes your relationship strong if you've got a good relationship? Is it because you obey one another? Because you're duty-driven and you gut it out? No. This this receive, this relational, good relationships are because I am for you and you are for me. I care for you. There's relationship. I will be a father. I mean, those of you who have had good fathers, have had really good fathers, what makes your father really, really good? Is it because we had a good relationship because I obeyed all the rules? And your whole relationship was built around your obedience. No. Those of you who have had good fathers and those of you who have had this great son and daughter relationship with your dad, it's not about obeying all the rules. Sure, that makes the relationship a little stronger. 
But what makes a father a great father is something much deeper. There's a heart. There's a passion. There's a connection. There's a relational component. There's an enjoyment. I enjoy being with them. I find security and identity in my dad. Not, not I just obey all the rules. So what this really entails, it says, okay, you have these promises. And because you have these promises, now live in a certain way. Now, here's, here's what this comes down to. Here's what I'd ultimately end, and I'm going to kind of bring this to a close with this. How do we grow by faith? This ultimately requires great faith because I've got to believe and trust and have faith in these promises, and therefore I'll grow. I remember very, my wife has been a blessing to me in ministry, and one of the things that um, she challenged me with, not, not in a bad way, but just in a very honest way, when we were first married, and I'm, I first started to realize God might want me to be, teach and all that stuff. And we're in a ninth grade Sunday school class. And I was teaching on the book of first John. And I started talking about living by faith and we're driving home the one day. And she says to me, I hear you say that, but make it practical. It's been her challenge me all along of marriages, make it practical. And I've loved it because it's pushed me as a, as a biblical thinker to constantly realize, you know what? Don't leave it up here. Bring it down to this level so we can really live with it. So um, I've always thought, you know, okay, so what does it really mean to live by faith? What does it really truly mean? And I've always, that question she asked me years ago has stuck in my head. And I've always said, what does it really mean to, we, we throw these Christian cliches out, live by faith, but what does it really mean? Well, I think the first thing, and, and this is, I've always looked at this and I want to try to make is we look backwards and you hear me talk about this a lot. We look back at what Jesus has done for us. So Jesus died for me. He loved me. He came, he died for me. He rose for me. And by me believing in him, I become God's child. I'm adopted. I'm brought into the family. Now that's looking back. Now it also, as you look back, I am justified. I am made right. I am, I am now in the family and God looks at me and says, you are acceptable. So that isn't just, doesn't happen just one time. It happens daily as I live every single day. I get up, I need to look back and say, okay, God, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I believe that I have faith in that. I'm going to live from that position today. No condemnation. It also means I look back and it says, okay, the Bible teaches that once I'm adopted, I am loved. Okay, so I'm going to live from that position. So I'm not going to work today to prove my worth to you. I'm going to live as a loved person and accepted. It also means I look back and it's okay, I'm an heir of the kingdom. That's looking back. God has brought me into his family. Therefore, I'm not going to work today to have all the stuff because God's already given me all his stuff. So again, that's looking back. I'm justified by faith. I'm made right by faith. I look back. But there's also, and this component of it has been very helpful for me as of late. And I think it's really what's kind of driven us to move towards uh, the, the journal we're going to have and the reading plan. It's this look forwards. We need to look forward, not just backwards. Now, here's how this works. A guy by the name of Kevin DeYoung, I apologize for the misprint there. It's not Devin, it's actually Kevin. Sorry about that. But here's what he said something recently in a book that I read, an excerpt that I read, and this really meant a lot to me. Justification, that's the looking back, meaning God's going to make me right. He's going to justify me. Justification is not the only remedy for sin. Now, most of us read that and think, oh my goodness, that's heresy. <laughs> we believe in Jesus and Jesus alone and what he's done. Hang with me here. Look what he says. Understanding what God has done for us will not smash every idol in my life. It will not 
make my life healthy and whole in the way that I really desire. He goes on to say this. There are longings in our soul that will be satisfied only by the promises of what? What's he say? Future blessing. There are things in my life that, yes, looking back is important, but I need to have just as much faith looking forward. Okay, so God's accomplished something for me in the past, but he's also accomplishing something for me in the future. And that's what's, and there's longings in my soul. There's idols that I serve, whether it's success or fame or fortune or whatever idol I'm chasing after, it's not going to be completely smashed unless I'm able to look forward at the promises. Here's the deal. God is constantly, when you read through scripture, there are over 3,000 promises in the Bible written to you and to me. And these promises are meant to fuel the engine of obedience. I mean, that's what it does in chapter seven, verse one. Since you have these promises, now live a certain way. Look forward. Basically, it's this. Pursue holiness. I'm going to chase after holiness by faith in the promises of God. And a classic example of this, maybe you want to look at it and read it this week. Matthew chapter five through seven. Jesus' most famous sermon, it's the Sermon on the Mount. He comes out of the gate swinging with pleasure. Those of you who know the sermon, what's he start with? He repeats one word, I think, seven times. What's the word he uses? Blessed. Blessed. That's not a duty-driven word. That's a word that's a pleasure-driven, an enjoyment, a saying, hey, listen, if you live this kingdom-oriented way, blessed are you. Blessed. Your life is going to be rich. It's going to be meaningful. It's going to be full. Blessed are you. You continue reading through. How does he attack lust? He fights pleasure with pleasure. He comes at lust. Okay, no, pleasure with pleasure means there is sometimes positive promises, meaning you live this way, you're going to be blessed. There's negative promises. You live this way, you've got, you've got a, a, a painful future. When it comes to lust in, in the Sermon on the Mount, what's he say? If you continue to chase after, you will not have eternal life, he says. It's a scary, scary thing for me to read. Who, who I'm a person who believes that when you're a believer in Jesus, you are in the family and you are secure. But when I read that passage and I say, if I'm a person who's consistently looking at pornography or chasing after lust in my heart, it says I don't have eternal life. It's a promise. It's something that's pleasure-driven. He's saying that fulfillment, that long-term drive for eternal life, that you have in your soul will not be fulfilled. So it's like he's saying, listen, okay, I can choose the 10 seconds, the five seconds of look, or I can take fellowship and communion with God. It's pleasure. It's not duty. You continue in Matthew chapter six. And what's he say in Matthew chapter six? He talks all about worry and money and, and possessions. He says, don't love money more than me. It's a big one for our culture today. It's a big one for me. What's it, what's it loaded with? All throughout, there are promises. He says, I am your father and I will what? I'm going to provide for you. I will take care of you. Trust me. It's a, it's a future-oriented promise. And then he says, some of you know it. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and finish the verse for me. It's kind of sad, but we did it. Good job. <laughs> And all these things will be added unto us. I mean, you you know that it's a cool statement. 
It's, it's a pleasure-driven thing. It's saying you want this, you have this longing inside of you, but chase after me. And, and then he gives you the promise, and all this stuff will be given to you. It's a future-driven thing. And the promises of God. He attacks, he attacks pleasure with pleasure. He doesn't come at it and saying, gut it out, work hard, change, do duty. He says, you're going to have enjoyment and satisfaction of your soul like you know nothing about. So chase after me. It's awesome. I love reading it. It's, it's a thing. So, so as we think about this this year, here's what we're going to do. Again, I'm very passionate about it. If I can do one thing as a pastor, it's encourage people to read the Bible for themselves. If that's the only thing I could ever accomplish, I would be a happy man when I go to my grave. If I, get, if I can get every person I come in contact with to consider, at least consider trying and attempting to read the Bible for themselves. And if I can help them and encourage them in that, I think I've been successful. So what we do is we put together a reading plan. This year, we're going to talk about the promises. And we're going to look future at the promises. Again, this was in our bulletin last week. If you weren't here and would like one, this is the plan for the whole year. So we can all link arms together. You can head out off to the right. You're going to see this on the wall. Please grab one. There's also journals available out there. Feel free to, uh, they cost a little extra, but feel free to grab one and and consider journaling uh, this year. Let me show you how this works. I'll bring the plane in for landing with this. If you want to, turn over to James chapter 1. And I would add this as you're turning there. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, again, if you're in 2 Corinthians, just continue paging towards the back of your Bible. You're going to see a larger book called Hebrews, and then you'll run into the book of James. I would add this too. (laughs) If you don't want to do our reading plan, you say, I'm not into this whole corporate, everyone get together and do one big thing. That's just a big sales pitch. That's cool. I get your skepticism. But here's my thing. If you're doing one and you love it, keep doing it. If you found something online or an app that works for you, Please keep doing it. Don't just change for us. My passion isn't that you follow our plan, but it's that you get into the word of God yourself. So again, I just want to make that clear. It's about, again, we, we want to give you tools to help you, but it's not a, you don't need to do our tools to be successful. Now, James chapter 1, here's how this works. Those of you who have already started the reading plan know that this was our reading. You would have either read it yesterday or depending on how you started and when you started. There were only four readings last week, but James chapter 1 was the very, I think it was the last reading. Am I right? Is that accurate? Some of you who did the reading plan, I don't know, second or last reading there. So it would have been, thank you. I see some of you shaking your head. It was the last reading. Now, the, the first week has all been set up to help us just understand that God does not change so we can trust him. So when he promises us things, we can trust him because he doesn't change. So wherever we read it in history, we know that it's going to come true. So verse 17 was the highlighted verse. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. A cool, great promise. God does not change. Now, I uh, went to do this reading. I'm, I'm really committed to I'm going to get better in my personal quiet time. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, we wanna, I don't want to miss a day. So I'm really sticking to it this year. Uh, I didn't do this last reading this week. I came to the end of the week and I had a pretty tough day. There was a relationship in my life that, that became strained and, and some tension between it and, and some hard things have been said and, and I'm feeling really bad about that. And then there's some stuff here at the church and I'm really, I had off and I'm trying to dig out of a mountain of work and I'm just feeling overwhelmed and we get all this stuff. That's, and so I'm just kind of having this, this thing that I do at times and some of you may relate, a, a good old-fashioned pity party of woe is me, life is so hard. And I'm one of these people, some of you may relate to this, I'm, this, I'm not a fighter, I'm a, I, I flight, I run. 
I check out. I, I'm a kind of an escapist. So when life gets tough, I go into my fantasy world and dream about all this cool stuff and how easy life could be and how terrible it is. And if only I didn't have to deal with this and this and life would be so good. So I'm, I'm having this good old fashioned pity party. It's about, it's really late at night. I can't go to sleep. So I'm like, you know what? I didn't do my quiet time. I might as well do my quiet time. So I sit down feeling really bad for myself. Verse 12, read with me verse 12. Can we all read this aloud together? If you have an NIV Bible, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. A promise. Isn't that a cool promise? And you know what happened to me as soon as I read that? (laughs) I'm like... Okay, Adam. Okay, God. I am really sorry. Please forgive me. I started to cry. I had one of those moments where I had a really deep personal, I don't always do this in my quiet time, but one of those moments where I felt like God was sitting right there with me. And he says, Adam, Adam, blessed are those who persevere. Adam, you know what? Push through this. Buck up. Face your problems. Deal with them. Persevere through the trials because you're going to receive the crown of life. Hold on to the future promise as true. And when you can look to the future promise as true, it helps me, it motivates me to live well today. So I got up from that quiet time and I had hope in my soul. And I said, you know what, God? I love Jonathan's, his whole thing. I said, God, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to do this thing. Well, then I started thinking this. It got my head out of my backside because then I started thinking about this. Adam. You want to talk about trial? I can name about five people in my life right now who are truly facing trial. What you're dealing with, you you can't even call it a trial. I mean, it's not even so, Adam, (laughs) move on. See the future promises and hold on to them. Trust God, believe him, have faith in him. And what it allowed me to do is I was then able to just go back to my own heart and be honest with myself. Instead of escaping my problems, I stood square in them and faced them. And I said, you know what? Some of this relationship that I'm struggling with in right now is my problem. I'm all ticked at them, but it's my problem. So deal with your problem. And it gave me hope and courage. Instead of walking away feeling like a turd, I walked away going, you know what? I can do this thing. Sorry, I know that's how I talk in my quiet time. I sometimes gets very colorful there. Uh, <laughs> oh, to be inside my head. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> But here's a promise as I end. This is a promise. I can guarantee this. You and I, we want to be uncommon. You desire change. You want to change. You and I will never reach our full potential in Jesus. You will never do it. I will never do it without private, personal time with him. Ever. Ever, ever, ever will you do it without personal, private nurturing that relationship that is inside of you. It won't happen. So you want to change. You want to run at this thing. You want to be uncommon. You want to stand out. You're only going to do it if you can work at saying, you know what? I'm going to spend some time with God. I have people who come to me in my 10 years of ministry now. I've had people come and say, you know what? Adam, I really don't care for your preaching. I really don't. You're not deep enough. I'm, we're going we're gonna to go. I've had students tell me that in student ministry as associate pastor. When I preach, I had people say that. And I had, as associate pastor, I saw people say that to the senior pastor that I served with then. And I've seen it. It's, it's a classic part of the church. And I get it. At times, people, you, people come to church. When I come to church, 
When I'm not the pastor, I want to be encouraged. I want to be nurtured. I want to be fed. I want to be challenged. I want to go deep. I get that. And I hope I give that. And I hope to get better at that. But what I have found in my own life, when I've thought about leaving a church because they're not deep enough, or when I've talked to those who are coming to tell me, we're out of here because you're not deep enough, what I've found is in those moments when I'm wanting the most critical of a church and wanting to leave, I'm not talking about churches that are preaching heresy. I'm talking about a good church. It's because I'm not in this myself, feeding myself. It's because I'm coming on Sunday morning with looking to that pastor or that Sunday school teacher as my savior. Fix me because I couldn't do it a whole week long. Now, I hope to, I hope, and I don't want to, if you're in that position, I get it. I hope to help you and encourage you. And I hope in some level I give you hope. But what I consistently find, and I had a conversation over the years, and I've always seen is when I begin to ask them, okay, so I'm not deep enough. How deep are you? I mean, what are you doing to go deep? And what I consistently find are people that push back, say, well, that's your job, Adam. Or you have the gifts. I don't. And I'm like, I get that. God's gifted me as a teacher. But you know what? He's put the Holy Spirit in you to teach you. So go to the scriptures yourself and feed yourself. Don't look to me to do it for you. I mean, I look at it like this. It's kind of like me chewing up... um, some good Philadelphia-style vanilla ice cream. I love it. You guys know that. It's like me chewing it up and telling you how great it is and then taking my bowl and spit it back in and say, now here, taste it for yourself. That's disgusting, isn't it? Some of you are like, that's nasty. Don't even talk. But, but that's what it's like, me chewing up stuff and then I'm giving it back to you. I'm only giving you on Sunday what God has done for me. And I hope it helps and encourages, but the real help is when we can learn for ourselves to sit down and say, man, God, here I am to meet you for myself. Talk to me because your spirit is right here. That's awesome. And that's when we can do that. When we can learn to do that on a regular basis and continually, we have the opportunity to be uncommon and reach our full potential. And only then. So my honest, as I go to prayer here, let's fight pleasure with pleasure by allowing our souls to feed on the promises of God. And in the process, watch our faith grow and and see success in our resolution. So I don't need to back down the bar and purpose to eat donuts this next year. So I can feel like a winner next year. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I thank you for new starts and resolutions and fresh starts. And I love forgiveness and grace and mercy. And thank you that he has come to this earth to give us just that. As we sit here in the new year, uh, resolutions are talked about a lot. It's hard to turn on a a talk show or a news or or the TV of any kind and not hear something about it or get on Facebook or Twitter. we, We see resolutions talked about. So God, help us as people to resolve this year to spend more time with you. All of us can get better at it. I can get better at it. Even those Christians in here that I admire so much have been walking with you and are so faithful with you. They even sit back and say, you know what? We can get better at this. So God, help us to do that. We want to be people that grow and succeed in our resolutions and listen to your voice and and run at life with with abandon and just say, man, I want to be uncommon. I I want to put this thing called the image of God whole again in my life. Sure, we know it won't be whole till we ultimately spend time with you in eternity, but man, help us to live well here now so we can enjoy that time with you. Help us to be people who look to your promises and buy in and say we trust you and have faith in that. Like I did this past week, I what a cool time. Thank you for meeting me there and just being able to say, you know what? I trust you that life 
will be awesome there. And it fulfills a longing in my soul now. So help me to trust you and persevere today. Help us to be people that take you at your word and really buy in your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.